In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Just a reminder that Diet Starts Tomorrow is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. It is not a medical podcast and does not constitute medical advice. Always seek the advice of a physician or a health professional. Betches Media presents Diet Starts Tomorrow. I stand behind my decision to avoid salad and other disgusting things. With hosts Remy Casimir. I'll have what she's having. And Emily Lubin. Remember, shoot like you have a secret. We're here to amuse your boosh. Hello, and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Remy. And I'm Emily. And today, we're so excited to be joined by psychologist, author, and former great British Bake Off finalist, Kimberly Wilson. Welcome, Kimberly. Welcome, Kimberly. (laughs) Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I was telling you off mic that I've started reading your book, and I think it's so interesting. And um, I had never really heard of nutritional psychiatry before, Um, but it's Mm -hmm. basically all about the connection between the brain and the body. And it's something that's so, so relevant right now. I hear, Mm -hmm. you know, the wellness community talking about this constantly. So I'm so happy to have an expert on to talk with us about it. And you were on the Great British Bake Off. I was, yes, about 10 years ago now. Yeah. It's a while ago. What led you to that and what was that experience like? I feel like I don't have a very good story for why I applied in the first place. <laughs> Amazing. Um, really, I, I, I've, been, I've been kind of cooking and baking my whole life. And, and, and so mm. I watch a lot of cookery shows. It's kind of, you know, my favorite kind of genre of TV show. Yeah. And I had watched the first, I think at that point it would have been first three series. And at the end of series three, they said, if you would like to apply. And I literally just thought, that might be fun. Could <laughs> I be could me. do that. Yeah. And just applied. I could do that. Um, <laughs> so I guess it partly fits into my, you know, I do like to challenge myself and to push myself. So it partly fits into that. But there was never any kind of, you know, big goal. I've never kind of had mm-hmm. this long held desire to set up my own bakery or anything like that it was just it looked like fun everybody looked lovely and and I got to make cake right because everyone's supportive on those shows they're so supportive it's so different from any other competition show I've Mm -hmm. ever seen like Mm -hmm. Gordon Ramsay could never (laughs) no and I've watched I've watched the both the kind of US and the Australian MasterChef and other US competitions food competitions and I mean, they are cutthroat. We are stealing ingredients from you. We are giving you mm-hmm. these horrible deadlines. We're or pitting you against each other. And I think that was one of the the lovely things about Bake Off, which was just honestly, it was just we were we were terrible competitors because we were, you know, giving each other tips on yeah. what temperature the oven should be on <laughs> and, and ingredients, and, um, <laughs> encouraging people to, and ingredients and all of that. And it was yeah. just it was genuinely just a really lovely environment to be in and a lovely group of people do you think you got better at cooking or baking uh did I get I think you definitely do get better because essentially 
you enter an intense period of practice. And mm-hmm. if success is about practice, then you're going to get better. You know, I'm for the breadstick challenge, <laughs> for the bread, we had, I can't even remember how many it was. It's like, I think you had to make 24 breadsticks, a recipe for 24 <laughs> breadsticks. And so I'd made, I'd made about seven or eight batches. I had hundreds and hundreds of oh breadsticks hand rolled um, in my kitchen. And so uh, by the end of that week, I was I was a connoisseur of the breadstick. Mm. So yes, you definitely, definitely get better. Have you made breadsticks since? <laughs> good I question. actually haven't. That's a good question. <laughs> I actually haven't. And in fact, immediately afterwards, immediately after the kind of you, you wrap the final episode mm-hmm. and that week had been incredibly stressful because I had to learn how to make a wedding cake. It was just, it was so stressful Ooh. and also submit two essays for my finals. Oh um, my God. And I couldn't, I couldn't actually really go into my kitchen. I certainly couldn't bake for a while. I re- I just, I couldn't, <laughs> I was like, someone just ordered me a pizza, please. I can't do this. It, Cause I'd just been in there and I, you know, as soon as you hear that you're getting in. So I think I heard in the, maybe the October, November. And so you start practicing quietly, kind of gently, just trialing new recipes that you were less familiar with um, all the way up until the end of April. So kind of six months of just, baking just and baking. I just had yeah. to take a little kind of a little break a little little yeah. rehab <laughs> a step back a little bit I feel like it's like when your parents catch you smoking cigarettes and make you smoke a whole pack like I don't know if anybody did that but then it's like you're like I never <laughs> like, want to smoke gonna again you're gonna hate this yeah <laughs> no more breadsticks <laughs> people say if you do what you love you never work a day in your life and that is absolutely not true anything even if you love it it becomes a job if you're doing it day in and day <laughs> yes. out yes yeah, totally yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you share something about your background as a psychologist you mentioned you were in school when you were uh on great mm-hmm. british baking show was that for psychology Yes. So that was, I'd already qualified as a psychologist and I was doing my second master's in, so not my second master's in psychotherapy. I was doing, so I'd already had one master's. I was doing another master's in um, psychodynamic psychotherapy. So I was in the middle, well, I was at the end of that whilst I was, was doing Bake Off. So. Wow. And how did you become interested in nutritional psychiatry? I think Again, it's a kind of combination of conscious and unconscious motivation. So again, I'd always been interested in food and like cooking and things like that. But I think the most clear um, kind of conscious driver was when I was working in prisons, um, Mm. which was actually just just before Bake Off. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had my last placement of of my clinical training was in a prison and then they after I qualified they asked me to stay on and to run the service and so I was running um essentially the NHS therapy service in the prison so our national so the kind of the equivalent of a a practice outside but for the um the prison population so yes I was I was running my practice I had my own caseload I was kind of uh, managing the referrals to the members of my team but I was also doing the clinical assessments for when people were coming in so um nurses from the hospital wing or officers from the normal wings would make referrals to my service I would assess them and then I would say you know you should be with this therapist or you know perhaps mm-hmm. we'll refer you on to this treatment plan or whatever um and one of the things that 
you have to get on board very quickly when working with um, an imprisoned population is is risk, right? So risk mm-hmm. in terms of risk to self, um, risk to others, obviously the risk they had posed to wh- whomever their victim was, if there was a right. victim of their crime. And so risk, risk assessments, safety, security were constantly part of of my thinking. And I would have to sit in security um, meetings thinking about who might be at risk at the moment? Is there a court date coming up? Is there an anniversary coming up? Is there a difficult visit coming up? Mm-hmm. Which things are going to make this person more vulnerable, more agitated and or more aggressive? So so right. that's all the background. And so at this time, uh, there was a replication, I think it was 2009, a replication of a nutritional intervention study. So this one was done in the oh. Netherlands, in the Ministry of Justice in the Netherlands. And they ran a randomized controlled placebo trial of nutritional supplementation uh, in male prisoners. So split into two groups. One group get the placebo, just, you know, nothing. And the other get the uh, vitamin and mineral supplement. And what they found was that the supplemented group reduced their objective acts of violence by about 30%. Whoa. Whilst interestingly, in the placebo group, their behavior got worse. So they became Mm. slightly more aggressive, about 14% more aggressive. And so this study was a replication of a British study that had been done in 2002, which had found the same thing, which was, again, in male prisoners, when you improve nutritional status through supplementation, Mm -hmm. people were 30% less violent and what was really important about that was that a it was placebo controlled so it's huge it's it's such an enormous change um a it was placebo controlled but b we're talking about objective incidents of violence so we're not just asking people how angry do you feel do you feel like punching someone or not we're actually going to the book at the end of the wing where the officer notes down things that have happened on that unit and counting the number of incidents And so it was at that point that I thought, hmm. That's some real data. Maybe maybe, maybe we should be thinking about this in our very dangerous population of women who account for a hugely disproportionate amount of the self-harm that occurs in the UK prison estate. You know, all of those sorts of things. So that's the thing that kind of springs to mind when I think about why why I got interested. And you're saying the flip is that women are more likely to self-harm did they do a study on nutrition affecting that? At the time, women, and, and kind of still now, women made up about 5 or 6% of the overall prison population. Mm. Um, so most of our prisoners are men. But they were accounting for somewhere between a third and 50% of the incidence of self-harm. So mm. women's violence was largely against themselves. Ugh. Whereas men's violence was largely interpersonal against other people, or uh, you know, either in their cells or or the officers. Sounds um, about right. Sounds like not surprising, but it's not, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not surprising, but it's very upsetting. It's extraordinary. It's very upsetting, and there isn't really, or there wasn't, um, a really useful intervention. Mm-hmm. Right? There wasn't because this kind of violence is private often you know mm-hmm. you're in your cell or you know and maybe headbanging or cutting or something mm-hmm. you can't be observed all of the time and so yeah. really there isn't a very good way of addressing it there you know people in prisons tend to be highly medicated but there isn't really sufficient 
infrastructure or treatment to help them manage the distress, you know, because actually what we're seeing mm. is is distress of some kind expressed. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that that's missing. And whilst, of course, nutrition isn't going to fix the causes of that distress, what it seems to be able to do more generally, certainly what these studies suggest, although it was with a male population, is that it does something in terms of improving mm-hmm. the capacity to maybe maybe tolerate distress, yeah. um, maybe giving you a little bit of gap between the antecedent and the behavior, so the kind of trigger and the behavior, mm-hmm. you know, little tiny bit of thinking time and or maybe just kind of reduces the level of arousal or agitation that that person is feeling, which, mm-hmm. you know, which reduces the need to kind of express or act out, externalize those behaviors. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. Smalls cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your own fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some Smalls to my friend in Brooklyn who is fostering kittens, and they took to it right away. It is delicious. It is nutritious. It is easy to serve. Yum, yum, yum. Eat it up. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh, protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com slash DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. Guys, as many of you know, I've been on an alcohol-free journey. Please don't hold it against me that I just said journey, but I have. And one thing that I've really missed on this journey is beer. But now with Athletic Brewing, I'm able to get that delicious beer-like taste in my mouth without any of the alcohol. It's amazing. Just so you guys know, I used to love sours. I'm a big sour drinker and I really miss that taste. And now I don't have to miss out on it. It's amazing. Whether you're trying to cut back or you just want to explore a non-alcoholic alternative, Athletic Brewing is often a game changer. They offer a variety of different full-flavored brews with no alcohol allowing you to sip and celebrate anytime and anywhere. Do you like hazy IPAs, sweet fruity sours? Now you can enjoy this style without the hangover the next day. They offer hassle-free delivery right to your door when you order at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic brews bevs you can drink anytime, anywhere, and still go right back to whatever you were doing. It's a great fit for parenting, playing sports, watching sports, doing chores, late nights, and early mornings, so you can imbibe without worry. Try Athletic Brewing non-alcoholic beers for yourself. Use code DST to get 15% off your first order at athleticbrewing.com. That's code DST at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer, exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. 
it should come as no surprise that uh, that our physical health and specifically with nutrition can impact the brain because the brain is an organ, just like the heart's an organ, the kidneys are organs, etc. And you explain all of this in your book in a really I would say user-friendly way, a way that a lot of people can understand. Um, and I know you have another book coming out, and I, I'm looking forward to reading that as well. Um, but in your book, How to Build a Healthy Brain, you said something that really resonated with me. And you said that we're facing a global mental and brain health crisis across the lifespan from the young to the elderly, mm -hmm. the leading causes of death and disability are illnesses of the brain. And you go on to say that specifically with young people, aside from accidents, depression is actually the number one cause of death. Um, why do you think this crisis mm. is happening? Okay. <laughs> it's a big question, I will admit. Where do we start? <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a really big question. But I, I will I will give it a good go. I think I think there are lots of things going on. Yeah. And I can talk a little bit in terms of the demographic cultural changes that happen in the UK, which seem to be quite similar to those that are happening across Western countries, so in the US as well. So this might I think is largely relevant. And I, I think there are a few things going on. Um, I think, first of all, we are living in increasingly unequal societies. So the distance between the people who have money and the people who don't have money is getting wider. And the proportion of people who have the you know, the, the actual wealth of the people who have money is getting much, much bigger. What we know about inequality in societies is that it reduces social trust and increases anxiety. Because when you live in an unequal society, then basically your position is kind of unsafe and insecure. And it's much more important, you, you know, everybody is much more likely to be your competitor, right? There's much less social cohesion in an unequal society. If there's a huge gap between the haves and the have nots, if I'm a have not, then I have to fight for my place and I have to fight for my survival and you know everything is harder for me and I have to everything feels insecure. Um, we're seeing that happen and those correlations are pretty strong. Um, and certainly for the, I guess what would we call it younger millennials and Gen Z, actually the social security is reducing. So it's much harder to get your first step on the property ladder. Um, jobs are less secure. Zero hours contracts means that you can't save money. You can't plan for anything. You're not really sure that you have, you're going to have a stable basis on which to make plans for the future. So all of that sets up a foundation of insecurity. A scarcity mindset. Absolutely. The brain yeah. does not like being unsure, being mm -hmm. insecure, a lack of certainty, all of those things, not, not good for your brain. So that's a kind of contextual um, level. I think certain term, again, in terms of the nutrition, we have had, what's really alarming is that the, the Flynn effect, so what's known as the Flynn effect, is the observation that IQ has been increasing globally. So global IQ has been increasing since records began. Um, because of improved sanitation, better healthcare, better nutrition, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Except now, since the 90s, it's been in decline. And the 
big concern is that actually what's happened is that the quality of our diets has shifted so dramatically that our brains aren't getting what they need to function well for good structure and good function. And so I, I touched on that a little bit in How to Build a Healthy Brain, and I've kind of gone into it in more, more detail in, in Unprocessed. But we have, for example, in the UK, for um, so say iodine. So iodine is a nutrient that you need for thyroid hormone and thyroid hormones literally help to start the initiation of the development of your organs, particularly the brain during pregnancy. And we have, iodine is found in, in fish and seafood, right? In the UK, we have 67% of pregnant women in, in one study were iodine deficient. Oof. And the level of deficiency tracked with child IQ. So the lower the mother's iodine during pregnancy, the lower the child's IQ. And the same thing with omega-3 fatty acids. We know that mothers who consume more omega-3 fats during pregnancy have babies whose brains are better connected. And so in terms of our population nutrition, essentially, certainly the UK, we have 55% of our average adult's diet is ultra-processed foods. You guys are a little ahead of us there on 57%. Mm, one thing we're winning at. <laughs> the more you process a food the fewer nutrients you have. So literally, there's an inverse correlation between the level of UPF in your diet and the number of nutrients in your diet. And so the more that your diet becomes dominated by ultra-processed foods, the fewer nutrients you get. And the problem with that is that your brain is the hungriest organ in your body. It has a huge energy demand and it has a huge nutrient demand. So the more of your diet, the more of our population diets are made up of these nutrient poor foods, the harder our brains are going to have to struggle. And so that's the kind of physiological part of it. So we've got context, we've got physiology. And then I think the final thing that's happening, or, or one of the other big factors that's happening with uh, young people's mental health is social media. And I think particularly for the digital native generations. There's a whole bunch of things going on. I think there's a huge amount of obviously kind of competition and that level of social comparison. Yeah. Which is brand new. You know, we used to perhaps compare ourselves to our people to other people in school, but by virtue of being in the same geographical area, we were probably of the same socioeconomic status. We were possibly of the same uh, you mm. know uh, background or mix you know so there was there were more similarities than there are differences now with social media i can can be com comparing myself to the daughter of a billionaire like it totally. feels like it's a reasonable comparison but it's absolutely not yeah. um, but the other thing that i'm particularly concerned about and this is my kind of pe personal pet theory that i'm working on is the role of what i'm calling self-commodification um mm. via social media and that's the way in which social media encourages us to look at ourselves as a brand, as a product yes. right. to be sold mm -hmm. and rather than as a complex human being who is working through things and learning and working things out and in the process of becoming. Mm -hmm. And I think what that does, again, kind of really heightens the level of competition but yeah. I think it really separates you from yourself, yeah. from knowing yourself. You start to view yourself from the outside and start thinking, well, what is going to sell? Mm -hmm. Not what do I like? What is true? What is authentically me? What 
you know, what might be weird to other people that actually sets me on fire, mm-hmm. what will sell? And I think that separation from yourself is really harmful for mental health. That is, so, <laughs> that is so, that is so, that was a lot, but I loved every second of it. <laughs> that This is so relevant to things that we talk about all the time. Remy's New Year's resolution was actually to stop using Facetune and, you know, to yep. stop Photoshopping her images because a lot of the time you will forget that you used that and then look back mm-hmm. at it and think, oh my gosh, I looked so much better a year ago, but really you never looked like that. And so I think it's so true that we start to see mm. ourselves as a product. And then we start competing with old me who never existed. Right. Absolutely. But um, I do have a question for you, which is if somebody was experiencing mental health issues, let's say you know, sometimes I have brain fog or sometimes I feel depressed, sometimes I feel anxious. And they wanted to take control of that nutritionally and see how they could um, improve their nutrition to improve their own mental health. What nutritional guidelines should that person use? Or is it different for men and women? Like, are there simple things Mm. that somebody can focus on to improve their brain health? Sure. I suppose the first thing to say is that you know, we need to be very careful about not suggesting that there are any kind of magic bullets for this stuff. Mental right. health is complex. Um, and the the evidence is kind of emerging and converging that there's a role of nutrition. But I, I, I guess I, I the only thing I worry about is people kind of blaming themselves, I guess, or, you uh, know, yeah. being used as a way to be like, oh, yeah. you're depressed. Oh, maybe you're not eating right. You know, this mm, kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would always, we should always be thinking about nutrition as supportive, as an adjunct um, to to everything else, right? Um, and so in that sense, yes, there seems to be certainly a consensus in the observational data and, and, and in some new studies that, and really, <laughs> really it's the kind of stuff that you've you've definitely heard before. Like, and I wanna, I wish I could like just make it sexier and just like more compelling. Uh-huh. Um, and in my talks, I tend to use a lot of brain scans to make it more visual because I think one of the things about the brain is that it's out of sight and out of mind, so it's quite hard to picture. But yeah. <laughs> the things I I'm unless you can roll your eyes back of... and look, <laughs> I'm trying um, to do it right now and I'm th- having trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the three things, I think three places that I would probably encourage people to start are the omega-3 fatty acids. They are literally the structural building blocks of your brain. Um, They are irreplaceable in the membrane. And what I mean by irreplaceable is that it takes a lot of steps to get to DHA, the omega-3 fatty acid that is a large part of your brain cells. It takes a lot of steps. And there are lots of other fats that your brain, your body can kind of make on the way that are just easier and more abundant, but your brain doesn't use those. It ignores those. And even during pregnancy, the the fetus literally rejects those, pushes those back into the mother's bloodstream and draws down DHA specifically. So wow. it's absolutely irreplaceable. Okay. And and certainly in the UK, you know, hardly anybody is getting enough. So that is always a place I start. Are those like the stuff in fish? Yeah. 
Okay. So your um, DHA and EPA are the main ones that we're thinking about for brain health, and they are found in oily fish and seafood. So sardines, salmon, mackerel, trout, herring, mussels, those sorts of things. So what you're telling me is that it's good that I order sushi <laughs> three times a week. It's it's a great. I, I'm not sure if it's great for your budget. Definitely <laughs> not good for my budget, but I, I know it's good it's for my great brain. For your brain. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I would I always start there. And then along with that, you're going to be getting other really important nutrients like iodine as well and things like that. And the fats that the baby rejects? Mm. The fats that the babies reject, they are the precursors. So they're not bad, but they're like the ones higher up the um, production line. And basically the baby's body says, we don't have time to start making stuff ourselves. Thanks, mum. Like there's, mm. we're busy trying to build a brain here. Actually, what we want is the preformed DHA. So you can have these building blocks back and we'll just take the, the preformed versions. Um, and that's what's what makes the kind of low levels of fatty fish intake in the population worrying because is that the the amount that's available to the baby, of course, is going to be dependent on the amount that's in the mother's diet and in her stores. And so if she's not eating much beforehand or during pregnancy, then they're both deficient. Warmer weather is finally back. After so many cold months, it's nice to get outside and soak up the sun. But the springtime always brings those unwanted guests, pollen and seasonal allergies. April showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the regular and it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And 
they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y dot com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. Okay, so we got omega-3 fatty acids down. So then what, what's the second most important, would you say? The second most important group of foods, I would say, is leafy green vegetables. So, oh, Kimberly, you're killing me. Yeah. <laughs> Kate Ruffage. Kale. I gotta eat kale, Kimberly. Oh, kale. There is there is a oft-quoted study which found that people who ate a small bowl full, like a small cereal bowl full of uh, leafy green vegetables every day, one serving per day, in later life had brains that were eleven years younger than their kids who didn't eat the greens. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, if I ate a whole I'm bowl sorry. of cream spinach last night, does that count? <laughs> kind, well, kind of. That kind actually of. is a good question. No, that is a good question. You know, I've heard this myth that if you cook the vegetables, it cooks the nutrients out of it. And that's not true, is it? Is it? So it's it's partially true for certain nutrients. So it's 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 going to be true for your water-soluble nutrients. So things like vitamin C, which can dissolve into water, if you if you were to boil a rich, so let's say peppers, peppers are a good bell peppers are a good source of of vitamin C. If you were to boil them, fry them, grill them, you know, then the, the, it's going to leach out into the water, okay. and you'll lose some vitamin C. With your fat-soluble vitamins, much less so. So those are A, D, E, and K. Um, that's much less likely to happen. And actually what happens particularly with fiber rich foods, so things like carrots, things like kale, other vegetables is when you cook them, the process of cooking helps to break down the cell walls and makes those nutrients more available. The cytoplasm? So actually, no, just the cell, just the cell. She's like, what is Please excuse Remy, she's throwing out science terms. <laughs> She, she's hearkening back to ninth grade biology right now. I love it. She's like, is it photosynthesis? The, the mitochondria. 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 The answer is always mitochondria. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, it's a combination. So certainly for things like leafy green vegetables, so things like kale, you're going to get more nutrients out of kale by cooking it and, and serving it with a little fat, so olive oil, a little mm. bit of butter. It mm-hmm. also helps to reduce some of the oxalates in it. So no, it, what we're not talking about is kind of trying to plow your way through like bowls and bowls of raw greens. Like, like a that dinosaur. Is no fun for that's no fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but that's what I picture oh, when you say no. a bowl of leafy greens. I'm like, ugh, that sounds disgusting. But if you put like a baby spinach over pasta, that's really nice. Yeah. And not even, so what I often say to patients is that let's say you buy a shop-bought sandwich all I'm saying is I'm suggesting is you open it up take a take a bag of mixed greens put that in your sandwich put the bread back on and you're done so we're not even talking about huge lifestyle changes you don't have to you know get rid of anything at the offset 
what we want to do is add things in just to start getting those nutrients into you. I love that. I'm a big fan of adding things in and also sneaking things in. in, like putting spinach in a smoothie so you can't taste it, like that type of thing. Um, it doesn't take away from what you're making. It's just adding more nutrients. No. And also because so much of the way that we eat is habitual and also, you know, handed down to us, the idea of overhauling our entire nutritional intake is becomes overwhelming. So just slight tweaks that you're just adding to your repertoire is absolutely fine. Um, so yes, leafy green vegetables was two. And then number um, three. I'm going to be slightly controversial yeah, okay. I'm going to be slightly controversial and skip over brightly coloured fruits and vegetables. We'll just slide those in with the leafy greens. Okay. Fuck um. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> no, just kidding. Okay, we're, we're lumping that in with the leafy greens. We need to talk about fibre, ladies. Fibre. Um, okay. This feels relevant to me, specifically. It's really, it's really, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get enough fibre in my diet. Feel free to bully me. Does. Let's start there. Like, yeah. Okay. It starts there. There isn't a single age group in the UK or the US. And so I, I asked them, um, there were some um, American neuroscientists who were talking about the same thing. Nobody, no age group in either of our countries is getting enough fiber. And more and more people are thinking about fiber in terms of gut health, your microbiome, you know, dealing with things like constipation. And that's all fantastic. But I want to talk about fiber in relation to your brain. And the importance of fiber, one of the important things about fiber in relation to your brain is in relation to a structure called the blood brain barrier, which basically is what it says on the tin, right? It's a barrier. So it's, you know, kind of a wall between your brain and the bloodstream. And it's highly, highly selective. It only allows, you know, it's like a, a bouncer at a nightclub, but like a really expensive nightclub, right? You know, the door, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like I you have to, to know ID, his name. Your name needs to be on the guest. You need yeah. to know his name. You need to know somebody who's already a member. Like you, mm-hmm. no one is just walking in. Um, so it's like a very, very highly selective membrane barrier that only lets a few things through. And that's really important because your brain is really sensitive to intruders. Your brain has its own immune system. So it won't even let immune cells come in, your white blood cells in. It has its own immune system. (sighs) And if anything kind of crosses over that shouldn't do, then your brain's immune system lights up. But then what we've got is a neuroinflammatory response. And we don't Ah. want that. Neuroinflammation is associated with all the bad things. Depression, increased risk of schizophrenia, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, neurodegeneration. We don't want neuroinflammation. Because your brain is literally freaking out. Freaking out. Very sensitive. Who's this? Why are you here? Get out. You know, all of this stuff. What fiber does or what what happens when you eat enough fiber is that your microbes you know, chew it up, ferment it, and then they produce what are called short-chain fatty acids. Mm-hmm. And what short-chain fatty acids do is to keep that those tight junctions in your blood-brain barrier. And so without enough fiber, what you get is kind of this thing happening where you have a loss of integrity or function in that blood-brain barrier. And we know that dysfunction in your blood-brain barrier is one of the precursors to neurodegeneration so so it's a massive worry that hardly anyone is getting enough fiber so what is enough fiber like is there a uh, a generally accepted daily amount we should be eating 
Yeah. So in the UK, it's 30 grams per day, pretty much. Mm. And most people are maxing out at 18. Um, Lots of you know, gastroenterologists or, you know, gut-focused dietitians would say we need more. They would say we need to aim for 50. But I think it's the same thing as with the five a day. We choose a number that sounds manageable because otherwise people are just going to freak out and not, you know, not even try. So for us, it's 30 grams. I'm not sure actually what it is for you guys. What is fiber in? Um, the the all-stars are um, beans. Um, so beans and legumes, your chickpeas, your lima beans, your the fart beans, ones. All of those things that, that makes yes, sense, right? And the farts are usually a kind of a sign of a happy, happy gut microbiome. You know, they, yeah. they're chewing up that fiber and then just producing a little bit of gas to say thank you. Mm. Um, <laughs> so beans, I love that beans. <laughs> um, then whole grains, of course. So oats and rye and wheat and spelt and frica. Frica is particularly high in fiber as a grain. Brown pasta, brown rice, potatoes with their skins on, all of those things, fruits and vegetables, things like pears and apples. And I think you guys call them sunchokes. sunchokes? Artichokes? Jerusalem artichokes. Yeah, Jerusalem artichokes are the ones. so all of those. These are delicious things. They're delicious things. Yeah. And and just making sure you're getting those on a consistent basis. So we're looking at beans about four times a week. So about half a cup of beans about four times a week. And then, of course, your fruits and vegetables and whole grains every day as well. I'm wondering, um, I know a lot of people who take fiber supplements because I do feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people are trying to get more fiber in their diets. But yeah. do you mm-hmm. think it's better to consume your fiber with your food, like fiber that is contained in your food, or Mm -hmm. is taking a supplement basically the same thing? It's not the same thing. It's better than nothing, but it's not the same thing. Because usually with a fiber supplement, it's going to be one or two forms of fiber. Often it's inulin, which is extracted from things like chicory root or Jerusalem artichokes, that kind of thing, um, which is good. And we know that inulin is really good for the beneficial bacteria in your gut. Or it's something like psyllium husk, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's another type of fiber. And, you know, that one's quite good for helping manage blood sugar. And so they're, they're better than nothing if you've got quite a low fiber diet, sure. But the thing is, there are, dozens of different types of fiber that you'll find in in food foods in whole grains in fruits and vegetables yeah like if you're in a food desert and you can't get your fiber then take the pill but otherwise like why not try to eat the food and the thing is in order to have a diverse gut microbiome which for all that we know at the moment is the best way of ensuring you know health you know diversity is the best kind of indicator of health that needs a diverse range of fibers. So diversifying your fiber intake will help to keep your microbiome diverse, which is going to be supportive of health. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Gut health is something that is discussed more and more often ever before in the wellness community, but like, I'm not sure I even understand what it is. So could you give us a rundown of what gut health is and is it important? And if so, why? Um, To be honest, nobody really knows what it is. I think that's one of the areas in wellness, which at the moment is slightly ahead of the science. Mm. So, you know, often you'll get people saying, do this to heal your gut or do this Mm. to, um, you know, improve your gut health. But what the scientists are saying is, we've kind of just started agreeing that this microbiome thing is important for your health in general. What we don't know is what a healthy gut looks like for each person, because your microbes will interact with your genes, which will interact with your specific diet, which interacts with your environment. Do you have a dog? Do you not have a dog? Do you live near a green space? Do you not? So your microbiome is completely individual to you. We know that identical twins have different microbiomes and both can be healthy, right? So it's, we don't know what a healthy microbiome looks like. We think um, an unhealthy microbiome at the moment just means low diversity, right? But again, different people's bodies will respond differently to different species of microbes. And so the you know, the, the some of the associations that I see between, say, people saying, heal your gut to improve your depression are yeah. way ahead of the science. Mm. You know, the scientists are saying we know about 1% at the moment of what we think there is to know. And at the moment, the safest bet is just to make sure you're getting enough fiber, exercising regularly, trying to manage your stress, and then just kind of waiting for the science to kind of give you more specific information. Got it. So in other words, it's it's basically like the balance of bacteria, good and bad bacteria in your gut. But maybe don't listen to wellness influencers who say, cut gluten out of your diet to heal your gut, because that might not apply to everybody. And I see that you're no. massaging your temples right now. <laughs> because, mm. so the reason is... Sorry. <laughs> We're all fired up right now. So, so the two like two big issues with that kind of assumption. First of all, is I do see I see patients with IBS. Um, it's really really common mm-hmm. complaint, and it's very very understandable. It makes a lot of intuitive sense that if someone is having a gut issue, if they've got bloating, if they've got pain, if they're constipated, that they're going to assume that it's something that they they've eaten or are eating. Right? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. The thing about IBS is that it's actually a stress sensitive disorder. We know that psychological oh. stress uh-huh. and a history of psychological stress are one of the key risk factors for IBS. And so one of the big risks of saying, you know, heal your gut by cutting out something is A, that might not be the main trigger for it anyway, but B, what it can do is to increase the level of anxiety that someone is experiencing around food. Yeah, And so it might actually be the anxiety that's driving the symptoms, not the food that they're eating. So it can make things worse from an anxiety perspective, from a psychological stress perspective, but also having just spoken about how your gut microbes really need fiber to be well, to keep you well, to maintain that blood brain barrier. If you start cutting out gluten, which basically means cereals, actually all of the evidence we have says whole grain cereal fibers are the 
really the biggest group that is most beneficial for lots of kind of our health indicators. So cutting out gluten and losing those cereal fibers, again, might be worse off for you. I feel like that like influencer thing started with like one influencer who had celiac and was like, well, my tummy feels better. So gut health. <laughs> right. Yes. But you literally have a genetic allergy to gluten. So it would feel better yeah. that you're not, you're not poisoning <laughs> yourself anymore. Yeah. But that's not the case for everybody else. And I think, I think the thing, again, the thing with gluten is, you know, people latch on to it. And I, I would just like people to stop and think, like, if gluten was as dangerous as some influencers claim it is to be, then the beautiful nation of Italy would not exist. The big bread eating nations, Germany, Italy, mm-hmm. like the, those people who live off cereal grains, gluten containing grains. They would all be sick. They would all be really sick. And they're not. <laughs> like, they are some of the longest lived, happiest nations on the planet. So it, it cannot simply be this thing. And I would just love more people to be like, hmm, if that were the case, if that, then that, but not that. So probably not that. Yeah. I, you know, I do think we also have this um, problem of self diagnosing. And it's probably just, um, you know, living in the age of the internet and you can Google any symptom that you have. And, but there's a lot of self diagnosis going on. And I, I see it all the time like, oh, I cut this out and I realized that it was um, causing inflammation without ever mm. having actually checked that out professionally. Yeah, there's the self-diagnosis, but there's also, which I think we're seeing increasingly in mental health as well, the kind of social contagion factor, like mm-hmm. social media becomes a vector for social contagion, and mm-hmm. particularly for young women. Yeah. And we know that young women are the largest group who use Instagram, for example, they're the biggest kind of demographic group. But we know that in order for something to be a kind of contagion factor, what you need is to be exposed to it repeatedly and for it to come with an emotive story. Like it needs to heighten an emotion. And so if you have someone that you really like, you admire, you've followed for a long time, you perhaps identify with them, you project an aspect of yourself into them and they sit down in front of you in your bedroom essentially and say, my life has been changed by this thing and I was desperate and I thought everything was over and I had almost given up, but this one thing changed it. It becomes incredibly compelling. Totally. And it increases the likelihood that my brain is going to go, huh, okay, maybe that's relevant for me as well. And because your brain works on prediction, your brain is going to start making certain expectation effects, like certain kind of predictions for you, which increases the likelihood that that thing you constantly see and think about is going to emerge for you. Are there specific nutritional guidelines that women specifically should follow to improve their mental health? Um, as far as I know, no, there mm-hmm. aren't. I, you know, and and in fact, most people would just be a great starting place would be your nation's nutritional guidelines. You know, just start with whatever your nation says is a healthy plate, whether you live in Norway or Japan, in Brazil. Starting there would be a really good start for most people. I don't know if we have good guidelines here, but 
We'll check them out. I mean, that's another issue. People are constantly debating the pyramid versus the plate versus the wheel. I don't know if there's a wheel, but you know what I mean? This is the thing. But largely what they, you know, what most of them say is eat whole foods. This is largely what the pyramids or whatever are saying, that you have whole foods and fruit and veg at the bottom. And then at the top, you've got sweetened things and prepared foods and packaged foods. And actually what we end up doing is inverting that, you know, so actually we have, as I say, 55 to 57% for our nation's intake of these processed sweetened foods, sweetened fizzy drinks. Like no pyramid is saying you should, most of your beverages should be sweetened and fizzy. Mm -hmm, (laughs) That's not what's happening. But most people are drinking some sort of sweetened or or fizzy beverage. So I know I do. I think, (laughs) right. And so actually I think, there could be, if that were a starting point for most people, then from that point, you could make individual changes, right? Because no, one diet isn't going to be perfect for the entire population. But these diet recommendations are based on national averages. So if you were to use that as a baseline and then tweak it for your personal needs, then we'd be much closer to getting something that looks healthy for our population. But okay, so here's my question. In terms of limiting processed Mm. foods and opting for more whole foods or nutrient-dense foods, something like sliced bread, if you were going to make a sandwich, sliced bread that Mm. you buy in the grocery store is typically very processed. So is it a matter of like, now we have to bake our own bread? Like, how do we (laughs) avoid... Because so many foods are processed. We have to go back to a system of bartering and churning our own butter. I have to turn my own butter. What, what's going on here? <laughs> I'm a pilgrim now. So yes, and this is one of the difficulties when we're talking about ultra processed foods because almost by definition, when, even if you pluck an apple off a tree and like hand it to someone, like chop it up, it's gone through a level of processing. So the Nova criteria are like, okay, this is what we mean by ultra processed and. Broadly, the ultra-processed foods are the ones that are ready to eat, ready to heat, and or have ingredients or processes that cannot be replicated at home. There's no domestic equivalent of whey protein isolate, something like that, right? So if we were talking about, you know, your typical packaged sliced white, I would... I would look at it as a kind of stepwise progression. Like if this is the bread you've always eaten, then it's going to make no sense at all for me to say, would you like to switch to a whole grain rye? That yeah, feels like a me. brick. Like that's not, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to work. So I would say, you know what, maybe you switch to one of those half, half brands, you know, the a sliced white loaf that has added fiber. You're probably not going to notice a difference in taste, um, but you're going to get be getting a couple of extra grams of fiber every day. Fantastic. You do that for a little while, three weeks, six months, whatever works for you. And then you move on to maybe a brown loaf, a half, half mix of white flour and, and wholemeal flour. And once that feels normal for you and natural, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Then you move down to a whole grain loaf. And, I, and if you, you know, an organic one that doesn't have any added flavorings or sugars or emulsifiers. So you could look at it as a stepwise thing, but not to kind of necessarily throw everything out and say, well, now I can only eat bean salads for the rest of my life. Like, how can I make this slightly more nutrient-dense? You can keep two loaves of bread in the house, you know, like for the this a yeah. sandwich or whatever, mm-hmm. you can have your white bread or whatever. Like I'm not putting a grilled cheese on anything else. But I actually, Emily, I did try that brand that you recommended that I said would be too grainy. And I love it. Dave's Killer Bread. Dave's Killer Bread. It's so good. Have you ever had it? 
I've never heard of Dave's, no. I don't, Dave's? maybe they don't sell it in the UK, <laughs> but it's really good. It's like a seedy, nutty, high fiber bread. And I, yeah, I I've absolutely love it. I've heard of Ezekiel. Did Ezekiel change his name to Dave? So it's not the same as Ezekiel. He was getting tired Ezekiel of, of spelling drink. it for everyone. <laughs> It was like Dave, just Dave. Like, it's let's easier. not shorten it to Zeke. Let's just go with Dave. No, it's Dave. easier for everyone. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you kind of a fun question because we noticed that you post a lot of delicious recipes on your Instagram. What are your favorite mm-hmm. recipes to cook? And maybe, maybe more like quick and easy recipes for those of us who aren't great cooks. Like my favorite, favorite thing to eat, you know, like when you're on your own and no one's going to disturb you, is um, like a pasta puttanesca. That's mm. my favorite pasta. It's so good. Oh, my God. It's so good with the anchovies it's and the capers. So, just anchovies, capers, just too much garlic. Throw in yes. some chilies. Just yum. Mm, that is my favorite, favorite thing. And literally, I mean, it gets its name from possibly like the legend being that it's what prostitutes could whip up quickly say. between clients so it's very quick yeah <laughs> so let's uh, let's fuel Danesca. the prostitute within each of us yes delicious it, are the anchovies in the puttanesca adequate protein not adequate protein but they will give you some omega-3 okay that. so that's always helpful that's one of the top three important nutrients as we learned today i wish we could keep you forever me too. <laughs> this has been so fun. So fun. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, we're very excited for your next book. And congratulations that it's coming out. Thank you so much. Kimberly's book that is about to come out is called Unprocessed. So that mm-hmm. will be available for purchase very soon. And where can they find you and follow you? Probably your best bet is uh, Instagram, where I am at food and psych. And pretty much everything goes through that that vector. Wonderful. That's it for today's episode. Guys, send your questions to dst at betches.com to get them answered. Follow us at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram. If you like this episode, please write us a review and don't forget to check out our DST merch on shop.betches.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And then of course, follow me at Remy Casimir. Follow me at Lubination. And we are always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Aliza Zinn. Editing by Sean Kilby. Social media by Aliza Zinn. Guest booking by Ali Friedlander. Be sure to follow Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com or your voicemails to 212-287-5650. Betches.